Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good. How many of you could understand Ale in Spanish? Yeah, it's good. I was tracking. Ale, thank you. So good. Did great. I love it. Uh, good news. God had no problem understanding Ale. God was just tracking right along. It's like, no problem. So, uh, yeah, the angels too. Every heavenly being is fluent in all languages. Uh, well, hey, my name is Josh. I'm glad you guys are here. We're in like week 35 of the book of Mark. So if you have your Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 10? We'll be there in just a moment. Uh, I know Sierra just referenced the college and the young adult crowd. Tonight, we're actually gathering here at 6 p.m. for all college and young adult people. So if you're in that age group, we invite you back. We're going to have some coffee and some food. Uh, Sal's going to lead worship. I'm going to be teaching on love, sex, and dating and Jesus' sexual ethic, like part two because last week was so fun. Uh, awkward, <laughs> awkward laughter. Uh, yeah, fun for you, not me. Uh, so we're going to keep that going for the college young adult space. So we invite you to come back tonight at 6 p.m. We'd love to have you uh, and talk about your specific demographic and the needs you have. So great. Well, hey, listen, over the course <clears throat> of this series, we have tried, and I, I think we're doing this somewhat successfully, we, we've tried to put Jesus in front of you over and over and over and over and over again, allowing his words to challenge us, to heal us, to renew us. And we've been watching Jesus go along the story, and, and there's been a couple of times where he's told us where the story's headed, but we, we've sort of not glazed over those, but they were attached to something else. And so we are waiting to, to actually dive into this, this futuristic, hey, here's where we're headed. Well, today, for the third time, Jesus is going to tell us where the story is headed and it's about to get serious because the disciples have been traveling all around, doing ministry, healing, teaching, but, but now they're headed to Jerusalem, and the remainder of the book of Mark is the story of Jesus' last months or weeks, depending on how you take the, the last few chapters of Mark, but, but it's this, his time in Jerusalem is the remainder of the book, and so we're headed towards that, and this whole thing is pointing to something, and so today in these three verses, we are going to get where the story is headed, but we're also going to get the most important truth in the whole history of the world. And so uh, I, I want us to catch this so that we can get the details going forward. Uh, show of hands, how many of you like watching movies two times, like watching movies twice, right? Because you can like see all the details you missed. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a movie called The Sixth Sense that came out, and, uh, and it was like the greatest surprise in the history of movies. And Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. And if you haven't seen the movie, you're, you have had your chance, okay? Uh, he, he's dead the whole time. And then at the end, when it, you realize he's dead, you're like, start the movie over right now. Like, I've got to see this thing again. And then you go watch it again, and you're like, he was dead the whole time. Or was he? I don't know. Yeah. So in, in this sermon, we're trying to get ahead so that we can recognize Jesus is doing all of this stuff on purpose, and he is headed somewhere, so we want to see the movie twice. But we have to get clarity on the end in order to catch the details in the journey. And so this is so important to me that we even handed you a piece of paper that we hope that you keep in your Bible when you walked in so that you can get clarity on what we're talking about today. So uh, here we go. John, sorry, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Let's read it again. And we're going to spend the whole morning in these three verses. So they, this is the disciples, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. 
He's not wasting time. He's not holding back. He's leading the way, going to Jerusalem. And the disciples were astonished, and those who followed him were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him, as plainly as he can say it. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So here's the plan. As simple as Jesus could say it. Here's where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem. Everybody tracking. They're like, okay, cool. We're going there. When we get there, I will be delivered to the chief priests and the the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders, are going to send me over to the Romans, and I will be condemned and to, to die by the hands of the Romans. The Romans will mock me, spit on me, flog me, and kill me, and I will be buried, and three days later, I will rise again. That is the, the, the trajectory of the story. Now, in this moment, the disciples don't understand what's happening. Later, they understand, and they ultimately explain that to all of us so that now we, we live on the other side of the story, and we know these three verses are now what is called the gospel. The gospel. And listen, Grace Church, the biggest need we have today is gospel clarity. Because we have been charged as the church to defend the gospel and to declare the gospel, but you cannot defend something and you cannot declare something if you cannot define something. So we've got to define the gospel with great clarity because as we live in the world, it is our job to guard against And I'm not talking about like out there in the world fighting. I'm talking about guard our own hearts against false gospels. Guard against false gospels and declare the true gospel as fulfillment of the great commission, which is God's mission to get his glory to the ends of the earth. So this is of utmost importance to us. And if you have church background, maybe you've heard this word before. Uh, Maybe if, if you don't have church background, you're not familiar with the word gospel. But gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion. Isn't that fun to say? Euangelion. And it was originally a war term. So you would go to war with another army, and the team that won, the army that wins, they would have a person on their team that would run back to the city, and they would spread the gospel. They would share the euangelion. Go and tell of the victory. That was won for us. And so it's, it's, a, it's a noun and a verb. It's two things. And so this is uh, the origin of the word, And so the gospel in the origin of its word is not only good news in its content, it's good news in its delivery. Catch that. It's not just good news like the content as we won the war. It's also the the shouting, the yelling, the celebration of there has been a victory won for us. Something has been achieved over there, and it's accredited over here. It has impacts over here. And I am the messenger telling you, good news, everyone. The battle that was being waged over there has been won for us, and I am here as a messenger telling you what happened over there now can be uh, applied over here. It's not just good news in its content, it's good news in its form. And so for us, the gospel is, and really the church just hijacked this word, and no one ever competed with it ever again in human history. The church was like, hey, we're just going to take that word gospel, and the, the rest of the world and all of human literature was like, yeah, that's probably appropriate. You should just keep that word, because... Here here it is. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. That's the gospel. Who he is and what he did. 
And that is now the, the primary term for the gospel is, is connected to Jesus Christ. Now, this means, this implies, the gospel is not some things. So let me tell you some things the gospel is not. The gospel is not moral conformity. It's not clean it up or else God won't love you. That's not the gospel. The gospel, if you grew up in the church, the gospel is not come down forward and pray a prayer one time, and then the rest of your life you'll have a free ticket to heaven. That's not the gospel. Or if you're a student here, uh, the gospel is not cry your eyes out on Thursday at youth camp, have an emotional experience, too, too soon for that. Uh, we all did it, don't worry. It's, it's, a rite of, it's a rite of passage. But the gospel is not this emotionally charged fear factor thing that then makes you just feel like you have to be coerced into saying a prayer one time. Or, or let, me, let me get more, uh, this may be more appropriate for us. The gospel is not my life, in my life I have to do enough good to outweigh my bad because in the end I will stand before God and he'll put all my bad on one side and all my good on the other side. And I'll stand back and just hope that the scales are tipping towards the good and I do enough good to outweigh my bad and then God will accept me and allow me into heaven. That, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not what, what so often world religions say, which is basically God is on a mountain and he's frustrated because we're so bad. But if you follow these four noble truths, these eightfold paths or this way of living, then you can make your way up to the top of the mountain. And the harder you try, the more you can appease this God. He's up there far away. You have to work to get to him. That, that is not the gospel. The gospel is also not, if you follow God, then financial blessings is assured on your life, and you will only have physical well-being forever. If you do enough of this, giving here and saying these prayers, then you will only have prosperity in your life. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not that God's goal in the end is to make America a Christian nation. That's also not the gospel. I could preach a whole sermon on what the gospel is not. Because if, if it's not what Jesus did and who Jesus is, then it's not the gospel. It is not the gospel. But can you feel that all of us are so tempted to believe other things? Right now in the world, secularism is the, the gospel of self-discovery, which basically means that the chief end of your life can be found through your own self-forgiveness, your own self-fulfillment. And so how it plays out is it's almost like the gospel of kindness, that in the end, God just wants us all to be kind. Can't we all just be kind? That, that's, that's not the gospel. Or the gospel uh, of self-fulfillment that says, you know what? I can manifest my own future. God is far off. I, I just need to speak into being and manifest what my future can be. That's not the gospel. The gospel of hustle. Like I got to get up at 5 a.m., rise and grind, baby, rise and grind. <laughs> it's not the gospel. Great habit if you're into that thing. Not me, but if that's your thing, great. It's not, it's not the gospel. And maybe even in a more practical form, the gospel is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and if you just follow these three steps, you'll be saved forever. That's not. So Mark chapter 10 is clear that Jesus had to go be accused of something he didn't do, be tried in an unjust way, be killed as a criminal, and then buried and raised again because something had to happen. Biblical gospel, the biblical gospel says you and I, in our present state, you and I are enemies of God, dead in our sin. That's the biblical gospel. 
And in your present state of rebellion, you're not even able to see the need you have in your life for God, much less bring yourself to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. That's the, that's the state of the union when you put yourself into the story. And so that's why the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's not just here's some ideas on how to make your life better. No, this is something has been done. So as clearly as I can say it, the gospel is what's been done, not what we do. If anyone says here's how to do the gospel, they're missing it. It's what's been done. The only thing, and this, this may sound harsh for us, but the only thing you and I bring to the gospel is the disobedience and sin that made the gospel necessary. That's all we bring. That's what we bring. And so we go, okay, if, if, if we are so needy of the gospel, let's define it. Let's walk through it. So here are, here are six things that are implied in the gospel that we have got to internalize in order for us to defend it and declare it. Let's, let's define it. So number one. <clears throat> Are you having fun yet? I'm having fun. Here we go. Number one, the gospel was a plan. It was a plan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, it says this, For what I received, I passed down to you as first importance. This is for the gospel's first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to all the Hebrew scriptures. According to everything written in the gospels. Christ died according to the plan. He was buried, and on the third day he would raise again, according to the scriptures. What scripture? Mark chapter 10. Jesus just said he was going to do it. He, he did it. Verse 5, and then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's a beautiful way the New Testament says have died. You don't even die when you know Christ. You just fall asleep. How cool is that? Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Uh, this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, was the Awana memory verse this week for my daughter, Lucy. I think she's in the cubbies. I should know this. Is she in the Sparky? I'm so sorry. She's in the spark. Yeah, you know, I love my daughters. I'm very invested in their lives. <laughs> it's terrible. She's in, she's in the Sparkies. Sorry about that. I'm helping her memorize her verse this week, and I know that we're teaching on the gospel, and I know, and so her memory verse was, Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. She's like reciting that to me, and I'm like getting teary-eyed. She's like, Dad, why are you crying? And I'm like, you don't worry about it, okay? This, this whole thing was a plan. It was a plan. It's so good. It's, the gospel was a plan according to the scriptures, and the Sparkies were declaring that plan this Wednesday this past Wednesday. So theologically, here's what this means, that this was a plan. Theologically, this means our God has foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen in the future. Then our God has prophecy, which is his way of communicating what's going to happen in the future. Then our God has sovereignty, which means he can orchestrate events in human history to fulfill his prophecy, proving his foreknowledge. That's the plan, that he knew we were going to sin. And so from the beginning, he had put in motion a plan. There are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah laying out the plan that all of these things in the Old Testament were foreshadowing the day that the king would come and establish his kingdom and reign forever. 
That was always a part of the plan. 400 prophecies that one day the king would come and he would be born of a virgin and he would be born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah and David's lineage. That out of Egypt he would come. That his ministry would begin in Galilee and he would have a forerunner that goes before him in the spirit of Elijah. That's John the Baptist. That the Messiah would teach in parables and he would be without sin. And the prophet Isaiah says the Messiah would be despised and rejected, and a man of sorrows. And the, the book of Numbers said that, that the Messiah, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. That's the cross. So all of this was prophesied. The sacrificial system, the line of kings, the temple, all of this is working together under God's sovereignty, fulfilling his prophecies, proving his foreknowledge. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God is handing out the curses after the original sin, God tells the serpent that one will come from Eve that will crush his head with his heel. All the way, Genesis 3, 15, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3, 15, this thing was a plan. I think I told you this before, but there was this Twitter contest of who could say the gospel in one tweet, and the winning tweet was, was six words, slay the dragon, get the girl. The gospel in six words, slay the dragon, get the girl. That was the winning tweet. That's all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Who's the dragon? The serpent. Who's the girl? The church. Slay the dragon, get the girl. That's the plan. Every story you read that, that slays the dragon and gets the girl is a shadow of the gospel. And that's why you're so moved by those stories. One theologian said Jesus is either patterned, promised, or present in every page of the Hebrew Old Testament. When you know the end of the story, it changes how you read the story. Did you know the whole Bible is about Jesus, not you? The whole Bible about Jesus, not you. You're in there. It's not great. Not great. <laughs> whole Bible is about Jesus, not you. Because the gospel was a plan. Number two, the gospel is not just a plan. The gospel was an event in human history. Christ died in human history. Now, there, there's not a huge majority of people that live in this camp, but I, I fell into this camp for a season of my life. I remember being in a youth group, and I was like a junior in high school. And I started to doubt my faith in God. And I started to doubt it. And I, I remember telling my youth director, uh, Jesus wasn't real. And I remember my youth director took their Bible and they like walked and set it aside. It was kind of dramatic. They like set it across the room and came back. And they're like, hey, Josh, we, we can talk doubt. We can talk struggles. We can talk questions. We, we, can, we can wrestle with all. Like all that's on the table. But like don't go around saying Jesus wasn't real. Because even taking the Bible out of this history records the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Like, listen, Josh, you can go to Israel and, like, walk where Jesus walked historically. Like, in history, you have other historians that are not followers of Jesus that reference the, the Messiah, this, this king of the Jews. They, they reference his death on a Roman cross. They reference his burial and then they reference in, in history, not Bible, just human history, that no one can find Jesus' body. Like every year, the Discovery Channel puts on another show called Where is the Body of Jesus? And it is widely watched. 
And they're not just referencing the Bible. They're referencing just human history. Historian named Josephus. They're referencing Greek historians. They're referencing other people. You cannot act like Jesus didn't exist because he did. Now, you can say, I don't believe in him. That's different. That's fine. But don't say he didn't exist. The gospel is that Jesus entered into the story. He entered into human history. And he became like us. That the God incarnate, this is the Christmas story. He entered into the story in a real place, in a real time. And the book of Hebrews calls it the culmination of the ages. That all of these things were happening. And the great culmination was Jesus entering into the story. And his life illuminates all of the Old Testament, fulfills all of the Old Testament, and shows us that all of those things were fulfilled, were foreshadowed, and then fulfilled in Jesus. So you read the Exodus story of of God's people coming out of Egypt, and you realize that that, that that's a foreshadowing of what Jesus did bringing us out of slavery. You read the story of the Passover, where where the, the angel of death comes and passes over, because what does it see? Blood. Is anybody tracking with another story where death comes for you and passes over because it sees blood? This, this whole story becomes illuminated. Once a day, all of the Israelites would get together in what was called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where they would go into the most holy place, and the, the, the priest would put his hands on the lamb, and they would, they would sacrifice an animal in the Holy of Holies. And even to get back there, there was all these curtains and levels and process. And when Jesus goes to the cross and he, he dies, what happens to that curtain? It's cut open. What does that mean? Something was fulfilled. That whole thing that foreshadowed this is now fulfilled. What does Jesus say on the cross in his last breath? It is finished. What's finished? Every achievement or act of earning, every sacrificial system, it is all finished. Because Jesus was a person that came in human history as a part of God's plan. So it was a plan and it was an event in human history. And then the third thing. It's not just an event in human history. The gospel was an achievement in and through that event. So something happened between the father and the son that was, was then gifted. There was, there was an exchange, an achievement. Lots of different historians and theologians write it different ways, but there's, a, a debt was paid. Hostility was removed. Enemies were made friends. Wrath was absorbed. Uh, A victory was vicariously given to us. So we all know this word vicarious. Like we all know a dad who's way too into his son's uh, t-ball game, right? Because his son's going to make the majors because he didn't, right? So that's called vicariously living through your child. Parents, don't do that. That's not the sermon. But like vicariously living through them. That is a, a picture of the gospel that Jesus' life was vicarious for us. That he achieved something for us. Uh, another theological term for this is, is a double imputation. Think An amputation is to cut something off. An imputation is to bring something on. That my sin was imputed, given to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness was imputed, given to me. A double imputation was achieved on the cross. A a legal transfer is another way this is talked about. Uh, One of the primary pictures of of the achievement in the the New Testament is simply called adoption. Adoption. That's what was achieved for us. 
that in the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus to this day is the greatest act of sin that's ever happened in the whole world. The sinless son of God would be crucified. That was the most sinful thing that's ever happened. And in that sin, God used sin to kill all sin. In that sin, God used sin to kill all sin. In that death, God used death to defeat all death. And that was possible because Jesus had credentials and qualifications and authority to make it happen. I, I remember when Amy and I, it's been almost six years now that we started the process for adopting uh, our daughter Lucy. And when you do an adoption process internationally, you, you have to, and maybe domestically as well, but you have to do this thing called a dossier. And a dossier is just a fancy word for like one million documents. That's the, that's, that's the proper term, one million documents is a dossier. And if you've ever had to like have your signature notarized, like if you're going on a trip or a passport or buying a house, but notarized, like a dossier is like notarizing your whole life. Like you've got to notarize your whole life and people come to your house and they're like, do you really have three bedrooms? Do you really have 1,500 square feet? Do you really have two cars? Do you really have two car seats? They notarize your entire life. They look at your bank account. They look at your marriage. They bring in people to, to talk to. It is a significant process. Why? They want to know if you meet the qualifications to adopt. They have to know. Are you qualified to handle the costliness of adoption? Because in adoption, there's, there's a legal status change. There's, there's a legal uh, transfer. There's, there's this moment where, where the child is not your child, and then the child becomes an heir to everything that you have, and they are now yours, and you are theirs, and that's a commitment. And you, can, you, you have to commit to never leave them and forsake them, and it's this beautiful process. But the only way you can do that process is by having the right credentials, the right qualification, and the right authority that allows that to happen, and then adoption is made possible. And that is the primary picture the New Testament talks about what happened in the gospel. That someone with the right credentials, someone with the right qualifications, someone with the right authority could achieve a victory for you that you could not achieve on your own, a victory you were desperate for. And that victory was achieved because it, it was necessary for someone to be sinless to achieve this, and none of us can stand under that. It was necessary for someone to, to live a perfect life and then willingly die for their enemies. Someone had to have the qualifications and the credentials, and Jesus perfectly met all of those, and then chose to offer that to us in the spirit of adoption. Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes about this, and here's what it says. It says, when the the set time had fully come. Again, the plan. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, prophecy, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his son. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. An heir. That, that everything that belonged to Jesus now belongs to you. That everything that was accredited to Jesus is now accredited to you. That everything that you deserved, Jesus got. 
And everything Jesus deserves, you get. And this, this concept of adoption is beautiful. And so you go, Josh, what, what was achieved for us? Here, here's what was achieved for you. And we need to feel this. What was achieved for you is this, that the deepest awareness of myself is that I am loved by Jesus Christ and I did nothing to earn it or deserve it. That's what was achieved for you. That the deepest awareness of myself at an identity level, at a soul level, the deepest awareness I have of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And when anyone comes to question that deepest awareness of myself, I do not depend on my own, my own actions to affirm that. I, again, rely on the accomplishment of Jesus. I go back to his credentials, not mine. The, the, the whole story in, in the Bible, it kind of culminates. In, in the book of Revelation, there's this moment where an angel cries out, who, who can open the scroll? Who's worthy? And there's this idea of like, we need someone with the credentials and the qualifications and the authority to open the scroll that then can allow us into this future kingdom. And it's this beautiful picture that no one can stand up. And everyone's grieving and they're weeping and they're crying because no one can stand. And then one of the angels looks and he sees and it's, 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 the, it's, it's Jesus, like the lamb who had been slain. And so what you have in that picture is this, this moment of the one with the credentials, the one with the authority, the one with the achievement stands in your place. And because they have that, because Jesus has that, we have been offered the spirit of sonship and that moves us. That God is no longer a distant father. He's, he's our Abba father. He's near to us. It's beautiful. Number four and number five kind of go together. So number four, after what's been achieved for us, number four, the gospel is extended to the world in an offer that is free. In a free offer. If it is not free, it is not the gospel. If it is earned, it's not good news. Every other world religion says do. The gospel of Jesus Christ says done. That's the difference. Every other world religion Climb up to God. He's on top of the mountain. The gospel says, Jesus climbed down to you because you were dead at the bottom of the mountain and couldn't climb a step if, even if you tried. Fundamentally different stories. Totally free. No gimmicks. The disciples did nothing to earn this. The woman at the well... Jesus just offers himself to her freely, nothing to earn it. The woman who, with bleeding who comes up and is healed by Jesus, this thing is totally and abundantly free. Next point. Extended to the world and an offer that's free. Also, the gospel demands we apply the achievement. This is where it gets interesting. And this is where some of us may get uncomfortable. And this is where it may sound like I'm offering you contradicting terms, but I submit to you, these are not opposites. What I'm about to say sounds opposite, but it's not. You ready? If it's not free, it's not the gospel. If it doesn't cost you everything, it's not the gospel. Those are not contradicting. If it's not free, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it does not cost you everything, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it does not cost you everything, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the rubber meets the road for so many of us. This is what we saw last week with Pastor Scott looking at the rich young ruler text. The, Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, and the Bible says he loved him. And then what did he ask the rich young ruler to do? 
give up everything. Why did he ask the rich young ruler to give up everything? So that then the rich young ruler could receive the free gift of the gospel. And some of us, we go, man, that, those, the rich young ruler should have been able to keep all that he had and also get the gospel. I, I didn't write this. I'm just, I'm the messenger. <laughs> there is a cost to this. To Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus the Pharisee, and he tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You've got to reconstruct this whole thing. Everything you're thinking about, the best way to tell you what the gospel is, is just say, you've got to be born again. You've got to start all the way over. To Zacchaeus, Jesus says, you've got to pay back all these people what they owe, and he pays double. And so there is an implication instantly that the gospel brings to our life. Instantly, the gospel applies itself to every area of our life. And the challenge is for us to believe that in the content of the gospel, we find healing for every single one of our problems. I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to believe this. It took me, I'm still grappling to believe this. But listen to me, church. You do not graduate from the gospel into like more varsity level theology. It's not like the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity, but I want the D through Z. No, the gospel is the A to Z. The gospel is not the diving board that, that jumps you into the pool of Christianity. No, the gospel is the pool. It is the pool. And you go, what, what does that mean? Here's what it means. If you, if you want a healthier marriage, learn about the gospel with your spouse. If you want to grow as a parent, grow in your knowledge of the gospel. If you want to fight back against comparison, Grow in your knowledge of the gospel and in your obedience to the gospel. If you want uh, to be free from some of the financial stress that you're feeling towards just inflation and all that's going on in the world, th there's actually something in the gospel that can speak to that. Every single one of your issues, believe it or not, is a gospel issue. It is. You don't need five tricks and tips on how to do that thing better. It's not going to help. It'll help for like an hour, and after lunch, it's gone. What you need and what I need to be a better parent, to be a better spouse, if you're, to be a better roommate, to, to do whatever, is you need to apply the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit to every area of your life. Listen, Grace Church, that is how you become like Jesus. That's how you become like Jesus. The journey of discipleship is the journey of applying the gospel to every area of your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is an achievement that has to be applied. And it takes so much effort to apply it. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said he would preach the gospel to his church every week, and they would come back and they'd say, why do you preach the gospel every week? Same message. He's like, because you forget it every single week. Every week you forget it. Listen, you could download, if you could find it, I hope you could find like 365 really good, true gospel sermons. I, I hope those are out there in the world. You could download 365 of them and listen to one every single day on the, on the way to work. All you listen to for a year is the gospel. You would be moved and transformed and changed because there's something in that message that has the power to change you. It moves you. That's why whatever we preach, it should be fueled with the gospel because it has to be applied to every area of your life. Lastly, the gospel is... What brings us to God? It's what brings us to God. Contrary to what really great, catchy country music says, the end game is not streets of gold, where your dog is, where you go fishing with grandpa. That, those sound awesome. I hope, that's in, I hope that's in the cards as well. 
but you're not riding rainbows and raindrops and with your cousin Carl. Like, it's, that's, not, that's not it. Like, that's not the end game. Because you've been a good old boy who's moral enough to get... No, 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 no. The end game is that we get to be with God. Like, Garden of Eden again, God. Like, back before sin entered the world, I'm walking in the cool of the evening with God. And in the presence of God, I have everlasting joy. That God is the gospel. That he is not far off. No, he has made a way for us. He has planned for us. He's set forth Christ for us. He's achieved something for us. He's gifted that to us. And in the gospel, we have healing from all of our scenarios in this world. The gospel brings us to God. And that's what we most long for is this reconnection with our God. But the path to reconnection with our God goes through the cross. And that's hard for us. It was hard for the disciples. Jesus tells them plainly, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. He's leading the way. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And in order to bring you back to God, I've got to be wrongly tried, falsely accused. I've got to be exchanged for Barabbas. I've got to be whipped. They're going to put a crown of thorns on me. They're going to mock me with the purple robe. They're going to jokingly call me the king of the Jews. They're going to make a mockery of me. But in order for you to be brought back to God, we have to go through a cross. And that, that moment is the discomfort of the church and the discomfort of anyone who doesn't know Jesus because that is an offensive message, that your pathway to God goes through a cross. Just imagine for a moment taking San Diego 2022, take a, take a successful businessman or an independent businesswoman who have nice house, cool car, free thinking people, take them just for a moment and you drive them, get in the car and you drive outside the city to a dump. This is, this is how obscene the story is. You take them out there and outside the city in the dump, there is a criminal being crucified. And you tell that American businesswoman, businessman, that their only hope of meaning in this life, their only hope of the anxiety and the chaos of their heart being cured, their only hope of ever experiencing the joy that is available in this world is to believe in that man, that their eternity is, is dependent on that man. Submitting to him as their master and their judge. Listen, that American man and businesswoman, they will roll their eyes. They will, they will look away. And they will feel sorry for us. And they will pity us. But that is who our God is, and that is what our God has done. And that's why 1 Corinthians says, the message of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The way to God is through the cross, and you and I have got to be honest enough to say we, we are powerless against our sin, but praise God, we have a powerful Savior who has overcome our sin. That's what it means to receive this recognition of I am powerless against my sin, therefore I repent and I turn to a powerful Savior, and it should melt our hearts when we realize that God is so holy, he doesn't just shrug off our sin, he doesn't just give it a pass. He's so holy, he can't just give it a pass, but he's so loving, he doesn't want to let you face it alone. He doesn't punish you for it. 
So you and I, in the gospel, were humbled to the dust when we recognize how powerless against our sin we are. And then we are raised to the heavens when we recognize God didn't leave us alone in that, that he sent forth his son. So we should be moved by the heart of Christianity, that God has made justification on your behalf, that God has brought you to himself on your behalf. And here's the craziest part of the story. If you were to think of like a courtroom, you... In a courtroom scenario, when the gospel comes to bear, the judge, if, if, you're, if you're on trial, the judge does not bang the gavel and say, uh, you are forgiven. That's actually not the gospel. What happens in the gospel is the judge bangs the gavel and says, you're not guilty. And that's different. That's different. To be not guilty emboldens you it moves you to courage. It moves you to defend the gospel and declare the gospel. And that is what has been given to us. It is an exceeding wonder that you and I could even be counted as forgiven considering our stories. But then it is beyond our wildest imaginations that we are not just forgiven. We are now no longer guilty. That's why it's good news. A victory was achieved for you, and you are no longer guilty. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Right now, this is the invitation, right now, the, the, the no condemnation of Christ is available for the world. Right now. Praise God. So because this is available to us and because it's offered to us, here's the question. Have you and I embraced that personally? Not said a prayer once, not emotionally moved. No, have we embraced that personally, that we are powerless against our sin? But praise God, a powerful Savior has been sent. The victory over there is now applied over here. An achievement has been given for us. The deepest awareness of myself is that I am loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I'm not just not forgiven. I am, I am guilt, I'm not guilty anymore. Have you personally embraced that to be true? Because the call of the church is to, to send that message to the world saying personally embrace this God who has done so much for you. And so we want to invite you even to do that this morning. So the band's going to come out, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to have an opportunity to personally embrace the gospel again. So let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. And God, we believe you this morning when, when your word says that your gospel message carries with it a power, a power that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that is now moving in this place in power because of the gospel. So Father, I pray that as a church we could this morning embrace personally the message that a victory was achieved for us. God, that we can embrace personally this story. God, give us the joy of embracing this. Give us that joy, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.